You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here with Dan Bresnitz, who is the Monk Chair of Innovation Studies at the Monk School of Public Policy at the University of Toronto. He's also the co-director of the Innovation Policy Lab up there, but also the author of a whole bunch of books, including The Third Globalization, Innovation State, I think it was, and Keeping Up with the Red Queen, I think is the other one. And then this most recent book, which is called Innovation in Real Places, Strategies for Prosperity in an Unforgiving World. Welcome, Dan. Welcome. Thank you for having me, Greg. The other books were Innovation in the States and The Run of the Red Queen. The Run of the Red Queen. Yeah. Okay. I didn't have them with me. I was trying to use my memory bank to get... No worries. (laughs) But look, this book is, I think, very timely. I sit in Silicon Valley and I have people come from all over the world, as do plenty of other faculty members and practitioners here. And it seems like everybody, no matter where they are around the world, they're trying to create a Silicon Valley back in their country or what you call Silicon hyphens. So maybe it's a Silicon step or the Silicon mountaintop or the Silicon prairie or or whatever it is that they're trying to create. And they seem to think that there is a cookbook out there, which will generate a very specific idea of an innovative ecosystem. And it's built around venture-backed, highly scalable, tech-driven startups. And I think your main message in this book, among many others, is that we're thinking about this perhaps all wrong. And maybe if we are interested in promoting development, we should maybe have a little bit more curiosity about multiple approaches to development and that this drag and drop Silicon Valley, Silicon hyphen approach is fundamentally misguided and it misunderstands kind of the nature of production in the modern economy. Is that a fair description of the book? That's a fair description of a book. The one thing I'll add is that it's also misrepresent and it's a horrific misunderstanding of what innovation is all about and why humanity should actually care about innovation. Let's jump right into that, because when I give my lectures on innovation, I emphasize the difference between invention and innovation. I think you do this as well, and you discuss how there's innovation throughout the entire production process, not just sort of at the high-level R&D, the kind of stuff that people at universities like mine tend to emphasize. Could you describe a little bit about invention? Do people have different meanings for this word? What do you think is the best interpretation of this? So, yes. The problem is that we are mixing up invention and innovation. So to simplify things, invention is coming up with an idea or a completely new technology, which is new to the world. So indeed, in my university, your universities, other universities, somebody sits in the lab and come up with a completely novel idea, which is great. It's important, but that's not innovation. Innovation is taking ideas and it's the actual, the action of putting those ideas into use in the world all across what we call the production network or chain. So from coming up with a completely new products and ideas to the world through the improvement of them, the constant improvement, through the recombination 
to how you service them, how you sell them, how everything from that point of view. And those sets of action, innovation is what creates human wealth for a changeable world. It's not the fact that you and I will sit in the lab and dream up or even prove that we can make something completely new. It's the actualization of this all across the value chain, which is innovation. And I think an example, which a world is unfortunately seeing with its own eyes is the vaccines. So the vaccines, they demonstrate exactly why we need innovation and what is innovation. So it was great to invent them. Moderna and Pfizer, for example, completely inventing new mRNA. But then they started to have a lot of problems, which we talked about, including, for example, just creating the vials in which you can save those new vaccines, which are needs to be saved at minus 40. So now we have to innovate, not just in coming up with vaccines, not even how we produce it into billions and billions of units, but also even how we ship it, how we save it, how we distribute it, how we create the vials to make it. And now with the Delta variants and all the rest, how we constantly improve it every six months if we don't want more people to die. And that's a very quick, unfortunately, very real life lesson as to why innovation in all the bloody stages of production is what's important for human welfare and economic growth. Not just three scientists sitting in a lab and on their computer proving with their mRNA molecular can fight group. Well, of course, this is a little bit disappointing for folks at universities because I think when we give our standard presentations about the secret to Silicon Valley success, we always have Stanford and Berkeley <laughs> right in the middle. And so we're kind of like, all right, you want your Silicon Glen? Well, you got to put a, a really fantastic research university right in the middle, and that'll be the font of ideas. It'll be the font of talent. That'll be the font of, of research acumen. and when we look at places like Shenzhen, there really aren't, I mean, there's no world-class university sitting in Shenzhen, and yet Shenzhen is incredibly innovative, right? I mean, it's just a, a hotbed of innovation. Or even if we look at, I know you, you sit in Silicon Valley, and once, many, many years ago, silicon was actually still fabricated in Silicon Valley. Now we are begging a Taiwanese company called TSMC mm -hmm. to come and open up People play foundries all around the United States because we no longer know how to innovate and actually fabricate the chips. We design in those labs in Berkeley and Stanford. What is interesting there is if you look at how Taiwan, which actually the Taiwanese leaders went to Silicon Valley and wanted to create it, how they tailor it to their own environment and created a system which is at least as successful as Silicon Valley and probably the well and that's the other problem with Silicon Valley we can talk about. The wealth is much more widely distributed. Whereas many more people with different skill levels that actually have really good jobs and can innovate. They took their research universities and created Shinchu Park. But what they viewed their universities to do in terms of innovation is what I will call second stage or third stage innovation. They did not imagine that their university would be the first to award in coming up with completely new silicon technology. But they said, it's great that somebody else invented that. We will be those that innovate and invent in how to produce those in the most amazing, efficient, constantly changing ways. And in the end of the day, the Americans will come to us and beg us 
to teach them how to innovate. Right. So we can walk through those different levels of innovation. But first, I want to, you have a fantastic description of what you call the global fragmentation of production. We all know about companies like Apple, where on the box it says designed in California, right? <laughs> not made in California, because there's nothing made in California, although they're starting to make chips and stuff. But, you know, when we think about Nike, if we do the traditional Michael Porter value chain, they're kind of sitting at the front end and maybe the back end of that value chain and everything in the middle is outsourced. They use contract manufacturing and, and so forth. And you describe this as having profound impacts, not just on the organization of the firm and the boundaries of the firm, but just on where are the pockets of potential bargaining power and how do the economies of scale and scope play out when you can have these contract manufacturers working for multiple companies. The metaphor I think you use is the Jenga, right? You talk about the Jenga structure of modern production. Could you talk a bit about that? What's new about that? We've had complex supply chains. We've had multinationals that operate in a wide variety of contexts. What is new about this form of production? So what has completely changed is since, let's say, it started in the 80s, but now we see it's full of rotation, is that not only companies started to produce their products everywhere, but they have started to cut the stages in which they made their progress into very discrete stages, part one, and then different places started to excel in those different stages within different industries. So we've been talking about the semiconductor industry. So a very, very simple example would be that if we look at China, you mentioned Xinjiang and Alvarez, we look at Taiwan, we look at Korea, we look at Silicon Valley, and we look at Tel Aviv, all of them have extremely successful semiconductor industries. And in many of them, it's the same companies that work. However, then we would say, okay, that's great, but what are we doing in those different places? What you will see is that in Israel and Silicon Valley, they basically, the first stage sort of a novel innovation, they come up with new ideas to put on Silicon. That moves to Taiwan, but then figure out how to actually make those ideas into real Silicon. Korea controls very specific niches where they just focus on being the best in the world. For example, memory or the touch screens that you love so much. And in Shenzhen, they figure out how to take tens of thousands of those components and somehow make extremely cheaply, reliably, and of a very high quality, all of them into one product, which we call a smartphone. And in all of those stages, you need to have a lot of innovation, including very formalized R&D in the case of semiconductors, and you need to have it constant. So what we have done with various both digital tools, but also by changing the rules of a game, like how you transport, what is allowed, what is not allowed, and created a system in which companies focus on very specific stages. There is a discrete sort of, you know exactly what you move to the other stages, and when that is happened, you can have the other stage of production be done by whoever, wherever, as long as it fits the standard and the price and delivered to where you are. That also then changed the games of innovation. So Silicon Valley moved from a place where, as you said, Apple not only invented, but built everything to a place in which Apple and Google and Alphabet and Facebook just do the invention. 
that means the business model of those companies and their financiers, venture capital changed. It also means, which I think is as important if you're a, a local leader, a community leader, a mayor, even, you know, a governor of California, how those specific set of innovation translated to growth and to whom in your local. So in Silicon Valley, what we have just done is basically create a fabulous opportunities for the graduate of Stanford, Berkeley, and a few other great universities and their financiers. They getting absolutely wonderful wages and lottery tickets, which are IPO stock options. So if they start as millionaires and they become billionaires, the problem is unlike in the past when Apple used to do it and IBM and Sun Microsystem and Overest, none of those innovations translate to jobs to any other kind of Californians or Americans. Instead, they're completely shipped away to Taiwan, South Korea, and of course, China. We now have a serious problem in Silicon Valley of inequality. So the other thing I will say to all those people who come to you and says, we want to be Silicon Valley is let's assume you are successful, which is almost impossible. Do you really want to do it to your community? I used to teach a uh, multinational management, and this actually was a course that was fairly common many years ago. And one of the themes in that class was the transfer of know-how and the transfer of knowledge, whether it's tacit knowledge or explicit knowledge. And one of the big debates was whether or not it was easier for knowledge flows to happen within firm boundaries across national borders or across firm boundaries within national borders. And the whole idea of the multinational was that you could go and expand into these different countries and then transfer this kind of know-how. But it seems like the evidence seems to suggest that knowledge is often like a regional thing and it can flow from company to company within a region. So these different regions that you describe, are they flourishing and growing in these ways specifically because that knowledge is developed as a regional capacity? or know-how is, is a regional capacity that we can talk about the strengths of different regions and ecosystems? The answer is yes, but not just the knowledge. And we can move to shoes if you want and talk about regions in Italy and New York, but let's keep with semiconductor in Silicon Valley since you're there. Think for a moment what kind of capital needs and business models and management, since you talk about managing the multinational corporation, you need in order to create companies that you hope will become Alphabet, Facebook, or Snapchat versus what kind of finance, management, skills, and all the rest that you need in order to become a company like Taiwan Semiconductors Corporation or MediaTek, which for whatever reasons we Americans hardly talk about, but is shipping more than a billion units of highly sophisticated their own design, semiconductors, every year. Right. When you talk about the BPO companies in India and, and you talk about like Flex and, and these contract manufacturers, that they're invisible, I think, to most people. Exactly. To most people, but they actually make the global economy work. And when they don't work, we don't have even cars in America. But let's go back to that. So you need those knowledge to excel in those innovations, but you also need the right financial institution, the right regulation right management knowledge. It's not just those knowledge that you can teach in university in the tacit knowledge is also what are the kind of economic incentives and financial incentives that enable you to 
actualize it in a specific way, in a specific local. Right. If we think about policy, if you think about the government actors or the civic leaders who are trying to promote development, we used to talk in terms of industrial policy. Right. That was sort of the, the buzzword 30 years ago when Japan was emerging onto the scene and kind of the Asian tigers were drawing attention. Everyone was like, oh, wow, industrial policy. The government picks winners and, and they decide what direction or what trajectory they want to go and what capacities they want to build. You say that we shouldn't be thinking in terms of industrial policy. We should be thinking in terms of what you call innovation policy. And there are major differences here. So maybe go back in time and this idea of industrial policy, what was it and how must we think about things differently when we think in terms of innovation policy as public policy leaders? Sure. I will go to, as I say, ideal type, simplify and make it extreme, but it's very important. So go back to the height that you mentioned Japan. And you think about Japan, immediately people think about the car industry. So what was the task that Japan had in its mind? Cars were already invented. You knew who are consumers and customers. You already knew how to sell it, how they're being used, where they are. So what you could do, I mean, they call it strategic industrial policy, but in reality is you say, okay, those are cars, those are technologies, those are the customers. Now within those, which I already know, which in those parameters, what I want is a knowledge to make it. And then let's try to differentiate the product, change it a bit, which is basically what Toyota has did figure out to make it better, how to sell it differently to customers. But I know what the technologies are. I know what the products are. I know where the knowledge reside in the world and where I can buy it, steal it, absorb it. When you talk about the industries and innovation-based industries, you have actually at the extreme level, no ideas what are going to be the products, no ideas who will be the customers. And really very, very vague ideas, if at all, of what is the business models, how they help. Even if you manage to come up with something, you're going to make money out of it. So from the point of view of policymakers, in one, you can basically say, okay, car industry, those are the things we need to do. Those are the kind of companies. Boom. This is where we're going to sell it and how. Boom, boom, boom. In terms of innovation policy, what you are is, okay, I want to create agents, so human beings and companies that by definition could do things that I can't really imagine fully. Because if, by the way, if you can, Greg, stop whatever you're doing now, <laughs> go open a company and become a billionaire. So I have a different set of roles. I need to create those actors through universities, through others, equipment with the skills, and then stimulate them to actually do something about it. So for example, Canada has been unbelievably good in equipping actors with the ability to innovate. If you just look at our education system, invention, scientific, everything. However, very few people and companies innovate in Canada because we're really are not in a system in which we are stimulated to innovate. So you need to do both of those things. And then you need to figure out the global system and what are your relative competitors comparative and competitive advantage when you think about those stages, including, which I think is even more importantly, yes, I want innovation-based growth, but for what? So let's assume I'm successful. How does my region look like? And then you can figure out what stage might actually lead you there instead say, okay, people told me I need innovation. 
I need a science park, two VCs, one universities and 20 years and laid back. Okay. But it's a very, almost the opposite game of a tactical game of industrial policy is a strategic game in which you basically are putting a huge amount of very calculated bets on creating an actors that will do various kinds of activities that you as a policymakers can't. So it also means a huge amount of experimentation in policy. And experimentation in policy does not mean just coming up with new ideas. It's also killing things that don't work. I don't know how many times you work with policymakers and politicians. It's really hard to come up with new ideas. It's almost impossible, especially for politicians, to kill anything. Well, I mean, that's what we teach in business schools to our business students. The secret to success is killing bad ideas early, <laughs> freeing up resources for ideas that have more promise, right? And that's the problem with traditional R&D is that it falls in love with ideas and lets them rot on the vine for too long. And if that idea could move over to policy, I think it would be huge. So just to kind of recap, we don't want our policymakers placing these huge bets on specific ideas that they think are going to win. Like, oh, let's throw all this money into AR, VR, right? Because that's a lot of times what I'll get from policymakers that come to the Bay Area. They say, hey, we want to learn about AR, VR because we think that's the hot new thing. Or we want to learn all about autonomous driving because we think that's the hot new thing. And those folks are probably not the ones that are in a position to figure out what the best use of their local resources are, at least ex ante, right? They have to create a process of discovery. Exactly. We need the process of discovery. Also, there's my cynical rule of if it arrived to a politician and they're really keen about a new industry, it's about seven years too late. <laughs> because seven years ago, the people who really were smart started to develop it. Mm -hmm. Around five years later, if it was successful, it got to the media. And two years after it got to the media, politicians face it's a safe thing to talk about. They should have done maybe autonomous vehicle, but more or less seven, at least seven, probably 15 years before they thought about it. Which is exactly my point. You can't as a politician or policymakers. What you might want to do is if you figure out that you do have a competitive advantage in a set of industries, says, okay, where could I innovate to become a critical node, a critical place like South Korea in semiconductors, like Italy, Riviera del Brenta, if you want a luxury shoe now for your wife, if it's a real luxury shoe. At some point, it spent some time in Brenta, no matter what the brand is. If you want bicycles, I'm sure you will all know Shimano. You can't find a good bike without Shimano power transmission system. Can we do that? And there is some you to think about, okay, not what is the hot industry of now, but what might be the hot industries of 15 years from now, because even if you're wrong. If that then gives you tool to, as I say, equip and stimulate your actors and they start to play for 15 years, even if your initial idea that they will be great in green technology is wrong, if they actually are innovating in the market, not in their lab, 15 years of innovating, they have probably created a lot of really successful businesses in a specific stage, which you as a policymaker had no idea that this is how it will end up but they create wealth and jobs for your community. So all power to you. Well, you say don't bet on companies, bet on capabilities, but you know, how do we know that those capabilities are going to last? You have a, a wonderful piece in the book about the city of Cleveland. Maybe it was the Shenzhen of its day. It was first the Silicon Valley of its day. 
remember? And then it became Shenzhen, and then it became Detroit. <laughs> so it's, Cleveland was a place that had the capabilities, right? It was a fertile hotbed of innovation. And, and I don't think it was a result of any specific industrial policy or innovation policy. It just sort of lucked out in some ways. And yet the capabilities that had developed became obsolete at some point. A lot of the capabilities it created, actually, it's not, they become obsolete, but a lot of those capabilities are embedded in human beings and companies. Mm. And then companies and human beings moved elsewhere to employ those activities because Cleveland became an environment where you cannot innovate anymore. Its biggest companies stopped being innovative. There was a horrific political battle between labor and capital. There was no longer the availability of other resources like capital to innovate. And instead, they appeared somewhere else in the United States. Not okay for Cleveland, but okay for the United States. Mm -hmm. And those, let's call them factors of production, our people might call them humans, just moved to the other place mm -hmm. to employ those activities, which should tell you and teach you lessons. But even if you're an extremely successful region, you always need to ensure that you change your policies, that you intend them with time. Whatever worked in the past probably no longer works today. So if you're at the cusp and you think you're the most successful region in the world, that's probably the time to completely rethink your policies and institutions because you're becoming complacent. Part of the story I think that you're making is this idea of agglomeration externalities. I, I don't think you used the term, but the, this idea of the constant pull towards a central location for certain types of, of activities. And, and you talk about how some of these innovation hubs become ultimately feeder hubs for the more important hubs. And you talk about efforts at places like Atlanta to create Silicon Peach, I guess is what the term was. And at the end of the day, the best that these places can really, the best of things that they could do is really just to help launch some companies that ultimately are going to wind up going to Silicon Valley. Are these agglomeration externalities unavoidable? Are there ways to decentralize these different levels of expertise? There are some ways. I would say that if you really are aiming to be really Silicon Valley, so in a place where startups come and the only thing that those startups and companies do is to bring completely new, mostly software-based ideas to the market. And by the way, biotech has also become basically software-based to our listeners who think that it's something else, then the chances are, and especially if you would then try to court VCs and money, is that your funders, your entrepreneurs will very quickly find themselves more and more tied, embedded into either Silicon Valley or New York, or maybe Boston. Because that's where their customers are. That's where their peers are. That's even more importantly, where their investors are and where you have the best human capital when you want to move up. And instead of creating a community of your in, if on the other hand, you will focus on different. So what you will have is basically a feeder cluster, which by the way, might not be a bad idea, right? It just means. But it's a lot risky because you basically are investing all of your resources and putting them in companies at the most risky stage where you know that those that are truly successful, at least 95% of them would leave a region to grow. So it's like Silicon Valley on steroids is your strategy. 
However, if you look at other stages of production and try to innovate there, there is no A, there is no pool like Silicon Valley. B, once you move to stages in which you actually need to have production facilities and other know-how, it is so much more difficult to move a company because a company is not just 20, 25 years old kids with no family who couldn't care less where they live inherit that life at Sikovani because of the weather are so much better than in Cleveland. And you describe some of these, I think you break down this process into four stages, right? So you have the novelty stage and then the design and prototype stage. Could you walk through that sequence the way you describe it in the book? Sure. But instead of calling it name, let's just think about the product. Okay. So you and I sit in a nice garage in Silicon Valley with about $1 billion of VC money or more. Sounds pretty good. <laughs> yeah. Nice garage. It'd be a nice garage, I think. Very nice garage. We have our own private chef, which we stole from Facebook, which stole from Snapchat, we stole from Alphabet. Yes. But more important, we come up with the aim and why we got all this money is that we promise them that we have a completely new idea for a completely new product, which will make the smartphone obsolete. Okay. And if we're successful, we indeed will come up with this design. But then, because it's Silicon Valley, we won't have any idea of how to actually then manufacture it. So we will send those designs to a place that actually know to do that. And if it's in semiconductors, this will move to Taiwan to TSMC or UMC. Those companies will then figure out how to actually produce it for us. And then we'll probably it will be shipped to Shenzhen because, as I said, our product is also different materials and we need a place where you can figure out how to actually manufacture and produce and assemble this in a way that works. It will probably be in Shenzhen. So that's already three stages I talked about. Now, the real innovation that happens and the real reason by way we are talking to one another is because since the uh, transistor were invented and modern software was invented and modern data communication was invented, there have been a hundred of millions of engineering hours devoted to R&D of just making those three things that I said. So CPU power, a data call efficiency, software algorithm efficiency, basically doubling up every 18 years. Otherwise, what we just do, the video that we just do, would be impossible if we used all the competing and telecommunication equipment of the world of even just 50 years ago. And that's the other stage. And that is the stage of second generation innovation and also improvement in subcomponent and subtechnologies, which in the long term that we as a nation need to remember is the stage that create the most long-lasting welfare for the most people. It's not the fact that I invented the dumb smartphone. It's the fact that now every child in the U.S. and every adult, of course, can use a smartphone that completely transform our life. This seems like a level of global interconnectedness that is unprecedented, but it also seems like it you use the Jenga metaphor, which I think is apt because it's fundamentally, there's some instability built into the system, right? You have bottlenecks, you have economies of scale that lead to the dominance of certain companies in certain regions in certain parts of the value chain. And so when there's shocks to the system, whether it's the 
earthquake in Japan or whether it's COVID or it could be some kind of geopolitical thing with China, this can cause quite a bit of disruption because there isn't a lot of redundancy in the system. Yes. I don't think we've seen anything really, really bad happen. I mean, there's been some Obviously, some shortages of chips and so forth, which have not been catastrophic, but you could imagine some catastrophic things happening if there was a disruption to this network of distribution. Yeah, and we shouldn't imagine. We should expect exactly those scenarios you just talked about to happen if we don't change the system. What I think COVID has shown us, and when I say us, it's North America, is that in a time of crisis, we cannot produce and innovate on the things we want, even if we were the first to innovate them, like the N95 masks, like ventilators, and that our obsession, what I call techno-fetishism, our idealization of the new has cost us greatly and made us unbelievably vulnerable. We have not even, you sort of mentioned it in the side very politely, you have not talked about the growing chance of national security. We have survived in COVID, and we might hate to say that, but we have survived so well in COVID because in the end of the day, China behaved very nicely. It has its reasons why it did that. But if China decided to behave really, really unnicely because we are now at war, it would be very interesting to see what, if at all, we can actually create, including, by the way, our weapon system. Mm-hmm. But that's a different scenario altogether, but what it should tell us that even without man-made war, there's other kind of man-made catastrophes from viruses to environmental changes to earthquake to a dam going down, that if we do not start to reimagine what is innovation and how we create some of those innovational capacities in North America, the next crisis might not be so, I mean, How many millions have died in North America just from COVID? That might seem like a very low price in the next crisis. I read some histories recently of the Crusaders. And what was amazing to me is that there's a very extensive weapons trade between the Christians and the Muslims. (laughs) Venetians were selling weapons to the folks that were attacking them. And it was amazing the globalization of the military weapons business in those days. You wanted a good steel to cut your enemies. It usually wasn't in Europe at that time. Right. So the thing about having some kind of policy, you walk through some really interesting examples of governmental actions, right, that were taken to help foster some of these ecosystems. When I work with a lot of these governments, emphasizing having a solid legal infrastructure and and having good quality contract law and having wonderful bankruptcy law and intellectual property law and so forth. But that's sort of the groundwork. Then you need to have some very specific actions and targeted investments that that can be made. And I was wondering if you could kind of walk through some of these different approaches by these different agencies. When you talk about Taiwan, for instance, I was kind of amazed at the dollar figures. I mean, we're talking about a relatively small amount of money We're not talking about billions and billions of dollars. We're talking about just creating public goods. I mean, public goods is in your four different facets of these policies. You mentioned public goods, but creating these, some of these public goods, it doesn't really take a lot of money to move the needle. Could you talk a bit about some of the policies, approaches that have worked? Since you talk about public and semi-public goods, in order to excel in innovation, 
whatever stage of innovation, you can even think about Silicon Valley, you need a lot of purely public goods, but also semi-public goods, which are goods that no company will produce by itself because they don't have the majority of the gains sometimes, some of the gains. Those, you know, the basic thing that we think about when we think about it is education. But I also talk about shared production facilities. If you want, again, to think about Silicon Valley is all those wet labs in universities in which really scientists slash entrepreneurs and early startups can utilize those wet labs to play with a biotech. It's very nice to say that you need them, but you need to figure out in your stage, in your industry, what are those semi-public goods and how to produce them. So we talked a lot about Taiwan. We talked about a little bit about Israel and it. let's talk, for example, and move to a completely different industry, which I already mentioned, the luxury shoe industry and move to Italy. So in Italy, there's a region called the Riviera del Brenta, just about Venice. Where what they did is, by the way, not by any great design. That's another myth that we have is that someplace there is a great one designer who designed all those stages. No, it's trial and error by both public and private. So there are a lot of civic associations, right? That yes. perform these roles. Yeah. And then, so it's politicians, elected and unelected official, private, but they understand that they constantly need to figure out what their community as a whole is doing. That's by way, another semi-public good is creating those forms where those actors can actually act. But in the case of Italy, they figure out that where they can excel is basically in being the Taiwan of a luxury woman shoe industry. So there's a huge amount of design around the world. If you saw reality TV, you probably think that there's a crazy guy or a gal in New York and they come up with amazing shoe. And then poof, this shoe become a success. So first of all, there's probably not enough of those designers. Second, shoe, unlike just a regular design, in the end, a woman, especially if she pays 5,000 euros for that shoe, wants to put it on her feet and walk probably more than just for half an hour or one time half an hour. It should be comfortable enough, at least. It should accommodate the fact that there's a human foot there. So sweat and chemical reaction. Somebody should actually be able to walk. And you need to produce this in a certain price stage. And that's exactly where the people of Riviera del Brenta comes to being. Is if you give them a design, they will figure out how to make that design into a real shoe. All the processes that needs to be involved, including choosing the materials. It's not mass produced, but you probably want a few hundreds of those shoes. So how do you standardize it in a way that you can actually produce those few hundred shoes in short runs, sell them? But this is a highly fragmented, right? I mean, these are small producers. So not very small, but it's not that highly fragmented because what I just described, this stage. Basically, almost all the luxury shoes in the globe go through Brenta at some point, either prototyping, designing, and all the rest. But it's not like there's a single company that sits on a whole bunch of intellectual property no. that they defend with litigation and so forth. It's more that there's a repository of know-how, right? There's a repository of know-how, and there's a set of institutions which are public, but the companies also give money. For example, 
the school for shoemaking, specific kind of expos, specific kinds of organization that then also teach those very, as you said, what we in the U.S. will see as extremely small producers. So we don't have even the financial capacities over brains, not that they're not smart, but enough brains and slack to think about how to move into those kinds of skills. So somebody needs to help them. Saying that the, you know, the agriculture extension programs we used to have in the United States when we still had farmers and not just big industry used to work was created in Brenta, including the specific financial institutions that do that. And the one thing that we have not talked about, which I think is as important, they also institutionalize the way in which the local industry relates to the global industry. They didn't just assume it will happen. They said, this is the kind of things we need from the globe. For example, those designs and getting those designs before any other. So we will always have a capacity to figure out how to produce the new designs. Now, how are we going to create those institutional networks, global networks? So let's have an agreement with a Parsons School of Design in New York. Let's create the biggest expo for luxury shoes in the local. So they would help to standardize the interface, right? The global local interface. Yes. Yeah. So with the fragmentation of production, you need to have standardized interfaces where production can be handed off and you need to kind of synchronize that. And not just synchronize, you need to ensure that your people are in touch with the right people in the global. And you need to ensure that both sides trust each other. So those set of activities will always move to your local. Okay. You cannot just assume that because you're brilliant and wonderful, somehow people from all around the world will discover you in South Dakota and come looking to South Dakota because you have unique capabilities. Now, look, this is a local initiative, and this was not something that the Italian national government would do. Maybe the Taiwanese was a national initiative. Taiwan's a smaller country. But some of the initiatives that you, you reference, like DARPA, these are done at a large scale by large countries. Corfo is another example. I'm familiar with that initiative in Chile. Is the likelihood of success a function of the size of the sponsoring entity? Is there some benefit to having a local initiative, something that's kind of rooted in the environment without being removed in some bureaucracy that's far away from where the action is? Yes. So the book really aims to help what you will call local. So as I said, up to a level of a governor in the U.S. context, but a lot of it is regional. Figure out how the world works, first of all, what is innovation and how they can have a game plan to excel in innovation in a way that actually will help the residents. And that's what the book is really about. In terms of the size of the initiative, it really depends on what stage and what business models you want to play with. So if your business models involved investing 5 billion every year in production facility year after year, and your budget is 50 million, maybe you have the wrong dreams and misalignment. Okay. But that's part of a problem that I see is that a lot of people look at the Corfo or look at Singapore A-Star and look at DARPA and without understanding the context. So for example, 
you said that DARPA is big. DARPA is an accounting mistake for the DOD. <laughs> okay, so unless your country can have, if you want really to play the DARPA mode, unless your country, A, have a companies with the absorptive capacity to take the end result of what comes out of DARPA, which is extremely highly advanced and most countries that will just don't have it. And unless you can play and basically lose the amount that DARPA does every year, because we hear only about the success, 90% of what DARPA does goes down the drain. And it doesn't look like a accounting mistake of one of your departments. And maybe you should not think about the DARPA model. And I will also have to say that outside defense, ARPA-E and other attempts have not been as successful as DARPA, to say the least. Towards the end of the book, I think you devote a considerable amount. You start talking about these three obstacles or misunderstandings. And this part of the book was, I was a little apprehensive reading this because you mentioned three of my favorite topics, intellectual property, financialization, and data. <laughs> so these are three areas that I teach and three areas that I emphasize when I talk about economic development. But you're very wary of some of the trends that are happening in each of these three topics. Could you talk a bit about maybe first intellectual property, right? We think of intellectual property as almost a prerequisite for economic development. We think of strong property rights, protection of the rents that accrue to innovation. Certainly some people, some economic historians, when I don't think it's necessarily warranted by the data, but a lot of economic historians will point back to the origins of the industrial revolution and say, Hey, you know, this was made possible by the ability of entrepreneurs to capture the rents that they were creating through innovation. So what's wrong with the intellectual property system that we have today? As I said, the book main puzzle, what it mainly tried to do is say, okay, what can a regional leader or anyone who's interested in helping the region, business, private citizens needs to do and learn and help. Okay. It also then means, and that's the case of why this is data, IPR and finance. What are three really important domains in which even if you're, you know, forget the mayor of an American city, but the governor of California or even New York, your chances of changing them on a global scale are about zero, right? It has been proved that the American president cannot really change the global financial system or even the American one. Let's not talk about IPR. So you have to take it as a given. And the book does not look from the point of view of people who wants to maximize the money from the least effort with the lowest risk, but on how you create economic growth for your region. Once you do that, you understand that those systems are dysfunctional as they are operating now. And there's various reasons why about IPR. One of them, and let's just talk about patents because there's so many different kinds of IPR. To who do we actually really give patent property rights? To the inventor or to the innovator? We give them to the inventors, which creates a very nice business model for people who wants to make a lot of money without doing the hard work of innovating. And that is either patenting or buying patents. And just waiting for other people who are stupid enough to work hard, innovate and create rent, right? A stream of revenue and then go to court and create a rent. So that's one kind of dysfunction. 
the other kind of dysfunction is really we created those patents to basically solve a dilemma that you talked about, but you talked about only one side. One side of the dilemma is how we, because innovation is knowledge, if we do not create property rights, when it immediately will be imitated and then the innovators and the inventor will actually not gain anything, so they will not innovate. So we give them property rights. But in the patents, there's two things. You get the patent for 20 years in the case of the United States, but to get the patent, apart from this being really original, another problem of our current patent system, you have to describe it in such a way that anyone with a common technical skills in that area would immediately know how to produce it. Because the other thing that you want to do with innovation, if you care about economic growth, is it's extremely rapid. And that's a dilemma that has not been solved very well. If you look at the history of just patents, but others IPR, it always moved from one pandemic to the rest. So the euphemism of calling it strong IPR, which mainly means I give the, anyone who actually owned the patent the ability to extract all rents, means that by definition, you now decrease diffusion and all the economic positive spillover of innovation by the same degree. That's one problem. So patent pools and open standards and damages versus injunctions and other kinds of collective permissioning, would that kind of grease the wheels? I think some. We have tried very hard, and I think that was the most important thing, is to make sure that we give patents only to quality, real inventions, but it won't work. Look at the numbers of patents that the USPTO and all the patent offices in the world now give every year in exactly the same years in which we constantly moaned that innovation has slowed down and productivity figures are go down. So something is amiss. Then you look at all the econometric research into the impacts of patenting in the innovation area. And again and again and again, the more patents you have, the less continued innovation you have. We have to admit that we have a serious problem. We haven't yet talked about trademarks and various trade secrets and various other things. Mm -hmm. So again, from the point of view of regions that want to succeed, especially if they're not already successful, they should assume that within minutes of their company starting to be successful, probably in a critical juncture, so it used to be 50 million to 200 million revenues, those companies will be viciously attacked both by, just in the case of patents, by trolls and by competitors. Yeah. One of the secrets to Silicon Valley success, many people would say, is the inability to enforce non-competes, right? And so that's an equivalent. You could say, well, hey, well, wait a second, you know, you're investing in all these employees and then you can't like harvest the return on your investment. They just leave and go work for someone else. But I think a lot of people would argue that non-competes are, are not good for anybody. I mean, California is one of the only states in the U.S. that has this ban on non-competes. If I was a hardcore economist, I might say that this is a, which believe in patent. And as you just said, why as an economist, you should be for zero non-competes and yet at the same time for extremely strong IPR. But the reality for a local region is that they can't really change those rules, especially in global production networks. So what they need to do is to ensure that their agents of innovations, which are as we've talked about in the past, it's only for individual entrepreneurs and companies and themselves are as savvy as they can. 
and figuring out strategies where they can deflect and unsure the freedom of operation for their own companies. And the same go for finance. If you view finance as this is basically the main role of finance is to channel resources to the areas in which it makes the most efficient use of the money instead of the industry in which you can make the most of the money just inside the industry, then finance is right now dysfunctional from a point of view, again, of a region, an American region that wants to now become in, have innovation-based growth, our current financial system is a problem or it's dysfunctional. You have to accept that, understand how finance work and devise strategies so your companies can actually grow and scale up. And data is the same. It's not as if those are horrible things and IPR are a bane on the earth. No, IPR are a construct devised in order to solve inherent problems with innovation. The problem right now is that the system have now become so cumbersome and so dysfunctional, again, from a point of view of a regional leader, that to have books after books like myself and many of my colleagues in which we idealized about the perfect IPR system is a wonderful thing and will get you tenured, but will not help Greg, the mayor of San Francisco, by a hoot. So Greg, the mayor of San Francisco, should understand what is the IPR system and how to game it, not how to make it into an ideal country. Well, if you're a small country, then you can think like a small town. And Israel is, has been a test case for so many things. And there's been plenty of books praising the startup model of Israel. And it's clearly been successful as an incubator of companies that have gone on to go public in U.S. markets and elsewhere. But you point out some of the concerns about the Israeli model. What's the problem with, I mean, by almost all indicators, Israel's fantastic. You even got Saudi Arabia saying that they want to create a little Israel on their coast in the Northwest. What's the drawback to what Israel's been able to do? What's some of the, the dark side of the success story? The main dark side is the inequality in the creation of a complete dual economy. So let me be slightly less abstract. So in the 60s and 70s, Israel was second most agritarian Western economy. Since the 80s, and especially in the 90s and the 2000s, Israel, as you have said, has become startup nation, arguably the most innovative in the stage one, Novo innovation stage nation in the world, the highest number of IPOs bar it for a while, it was just the U.S. Now it's the U.S. and China on Nasdaq. Let me remind you, Israel is now 7 million people. It used to be 6. The U.S. is over 300 million and China is over a billion. Just to put it in perspectives, highest VC per capita, patent per capita, R&D per, whatever you want. Exactly in those same years, Israel moved to being one of the most unequal society on earth, where one of every five households, so one of every five families is under the poverty line, meaning they don't have enough money to actually give food to the members of the family, including kids, by the end of the month. So for most Israelis, this amazing startup success has resulted in sadder, less happy lives and vast, vast, vast inequality. Because what happened with this model is basically what we in the U.S. can think about as Silicon Valley on steroids. 
the startup or the high-tech sector is solely focused on coming up with new products and ideas. There's almost zero production in the United India, in Israel. The people who are employed there are the equivalent to our Stanford, Berkeley, and MIT. They're being paid very well. And when IPOs happen or M&A happen, they become billionaires. For the rest, 85% of the population, there is no new jobs, no new growth, not even productivity gains. They're still stuck in the 70s. And part of the reason is that the Israeli industry is not only just on that high level of novel product innovation. So it just doesn't create any jobs for people who's not an R&D engineer and a celebrity chef and a VC. It is also that most of the money, which was a good thing, otherwise Israel would have actually come, that goes even to VC deals in Israel and to Israeli VCs. 95% of it is foreign. So when you have a financial exit, 95 of the profits don't stay in Israel, they go back. So the majority, by far, of the profits created by Israel don't trickle down to the Israeli economy. There is no jobs that are created for the non-engineers. And indeed, a typical Israeli startups will have only R&D in Israel and a lot of its other function in New York and Silicon Valley. So there's an argument to be made that the Israeli industry created more good jobs in America for more Americans than for Israelis. And there's no spillovers. And indeed, the Israelis have figured this out and for the last 10 years have tried to figure out how to be successful in innovating in what I call different stages of production, because they realize that otherwise there will be no spillovers. It will be all the bad things that we now associate with Silicon Valley. So either you work for Facebooks or you can't afford a bedroom but on the national scales, and that is societally basically unsustainable. Well, Dan, you start your book by saying that you are not going to provide a cookbook for policymakers, but I think you short-sold yourself a little bit. I think it's just that you're not going to write a simple cookbook. <laughs> you're going to write a little bit of a complicated cookbook, and the recipes are not three lines long. You have to kind of read them very carefully and make sure you understand who the customer is and what the ingredients are that you bring to the table. But I do think you do offer some very, very useful guidance for, for policymakers, but not just governmental policymakers, for people who are private individuals who are interested in helping out their ecosystem, maybe people at companies that want to advance the progress of their region. It's called Innovation in Real Places. Thank you so much, Dan, for joining me. You're very welcome, Greg, and I hope to see you again soon. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.